I'm Jesse LeBlanc. I'm Kat Miller, and this is Vines and Wines. We created this podcast to share our favorite activity of discussing financial regulation while drinking wine. Each episode, we dive into the lessons learned from a recent disciplinary action. So grab a glass and let's dive in. Just a couple of quick disclaimers. Nothing we say here should be construed as legal advice. We're not lawyers. However, we do have collectively more than 30 years of experience in the industry. And while our opinions are our own, let us know if anything here resonates with you. We'd love to help you out. Lastly, we dive into cases to discuss the lessons learned and best practices. Nothing we say should be taken as being critical of the firm that is at the center of this case. (sighs) Okay. Bottoms up. Bottoms up. What do we got drinking today? Uh, Pinot Grigio today. Okay. And that transition from red to white now that it's getting warmer. So, and it was really the only thing I had in my fridge that was cold. So there we go. <laughs> um, I'm doing the same. I'm, it's finally getting to be nice weather here. So I've got Sauvignon Blanc, but I'm cheating a little bit because I did, I'm doing my spritzer thing, right? Like, so my plan for the summer is to really get into the white wine spritzers because I just feel like it's going to be more refreshing and so I've got half Sauvignon Blanc, half bubbly water today, but it also makes it so my glass is much fuller than normal. So that also helps. Maybe I'll not have to get up in the middle of this to get a refill. It sounds like I'm going to get the giggles and you're still going to be sober. <laughs> I don't know about that. It was a pretty heavy pour, but that's fair. Okay. So I have to confess, as a, all of our friends know that listen to our podcast, I have quite a bit of anxiety going into this. So This round, I decided I'm starting a new routine, and I didn't know what that was going to be until just a few minutes, well, a little about an hour ago, is I just turned everything off, ordered sushi, and just devoured sushi rolls while watching reels on Instagram. (laughs) I'm like, whoo, I'm in such a better spot mentally right now than I normally ever am. We keep talking about that, right? So like, you know, every time we've been in like kind of just a foul mood the last couple of weeks, we we take this this sort of lead to go down and we just need to eat carbs. Like that's really what the takeaway is, is that like we're missing carbs in our lives and we need to go ingest some carbs and then we feel better. So true. Every time when Jesse or I are in a bad mood, like the other one now is required to ask the person when was the last time you ate a carb. Right. Right. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Well, can I say for my Instagram though? I'm obsessed with multiple things, one being animal videos. So uh, I literally watched for the last four minutes a porcupine eating a just fruit. I don't know what it was, a pineapple, whatever it was. And I was just like, this is the cutest thing I've ever seen. And I'm going to watch it one more time. I mean, that's okay. You know me and my obsession with listicles. So I had to go down the, you know, what was it like 50 pictures that no matter what you do, it's just going to make you laugh. And I was in tears. So yeah. I'm not even going to share the one that made me laugh so hard that I had to send it to Kat. But nevertheless, (laughs) like, it was killing me. It was Jesse and I definitely joke around about our next job or business is going to be writing listicles because we just enjoy them so much. Yeah. But only if it can be like, you know, top like 30 things that girls who were born in the 90s, you know, remember about their lives, like stupid stuff that like nobody's going to care about. Like, I feel like I missed my calling because I could probably do that all day. (laughs) Yeah. 
All right. Well, I guess we can kick off our actual topic today. Yeah. So we talk a lot about testing. So we just thought it would be a good opportunity for us to discuss what we think testing really means and how we would handle the types of tests that we would conduct for our business. Yeah. So Jesse and I talk often in all the content that we produce about testing. That could be like on our LinkedIn, our newsletters, or you'll hear us talk about it here in these podcasts. And there's so many different types of testing and references to what the testing, you know, would be. So we just thought it would be fun to just do a testing podcast, you know, testing, testing, and more testing. So you guys could get a better idea of what we're actually talking about. Well, and we always encourage firms to create and maintain a testing plan that goes beyond your typical FINRA 3120 testing or your annual 20647 testing plans, which we'll get more into the weeds on what that means here in just a moment. Right. And I think depending on which business unit or department you talk to, when you talk about testing, it's all going to mean something different, right? So in compliance, a lot of times you're thinking about testing the WSP or doing your 3120s, where if you talk to somebody in ops or um, you know, they, the business unit, they may be thinking more on testing what their day-to-day activities are, the systems or et cetera they're using. Right. Well, and one of the things that I think is so important, and it's probably a common thread through any of those areas that you just mentioned, I can't tell you how many times I've done a deep dive on something, whether it's like email reviews or testing exception reports, or just checking and rechecking commission to equity ratios for churning or anything of that nature. And the first time I look at it, I don't really see anything or it all looks like it's okay. But then I keep testing it and I retest it and I check it the third time. And by the third time I do that same test, something else is coming out. There's something else obvious. And that's why it's so important to really have something that's robust that's going to allow you to go deep and be really thorough. So as we mentioned, I think what would probably be helpful to start with is just really to give a very high level overview of our thoughts on the annual compliance testing in accordance with FINRA 3120 or Rule 20647 on the investment advisor side. So when we talk about these, these are going to be your annual compliance testing reports. It's a more broad-based review that's going to require that you prove your WSPs are reasonably designed. Yeah, and I think because I was always business unit operations, if I talked to compliance about testing anything, or if they talked to me, it was almost always in this general topic, in this area, and maybe not the super robust testing that we're going to get into a little bit more when we start talking about like when firms get fined. Well, and just to kind of define 3120 a little bit more in 20647, uh, MSRBG 27, they're all pretty similar. So I think we'll kind of use broad strokes when we're talking about these. But it's really that firms are required to have a system of supervisory control procedures. And that on an annual basis, you're testing and verifying that those supervisory control procedures are reasonably designed to achieve compliance. So note that I said supervisory control procedures, not written supervisory procedures. And there's a reason for that. Yeah. And if you guys don't look at the FINRA FAQs that often, there's a really good FAQ about supervision that actually talks exactly about this sample. And we'll kind of go into a little bit more detail just so you don't have to go Google it. Yeah. So we'll share the FAQs in the show notes, but just to define, there's a good example in there of what the difference between a written supervisory procedure is and what a supervisory control procedure is. The example they provide of a written supervisory procedure is The head of the department will approve all new accounts by initialing new account forms before the trade in an account is executed. So that's very specific. That shows the activity. That shows what's being supervised, right? So that's your written supervisory procedures. Conversely, the supervisory control procedure, 
The one that they use by example here is the compliance department will review the FINRA weekly update emails to determine whether any new or proposed requirements are applicable to the firm and its business activities. If so, the compliance department will identify and implement changes to the firm's supervisory system and supervisory procedures to ensure compliance with new requirements. You know, so again, really, it, the idea be behind a supervisory control procedure is really just to dis determine whether or not your written supervisory procedures are reasonably designed. So I think what might be helpful next then is just to really dive in to the types of testing. When we talk about testing, the type of testing that we do, what that means in some different cases and scenarios of where that might come up. Right. And in this particular podcast, because we focus mostly on capital markets, we're really going to kind of stay true to a little bit more of the capital markets side of business. If you read through FINRA rules, though, there's a lot more emphasis often on the branch supervision. And so keep that in mind, like we're going to just kind of be focused a little bit more on capital markets. So just for the nature of this podcast, we're going to really focus on testing your vendors, testing your systems, and testing the data. Yeah, so I think if we start with testing the vendors, this is one that I think we've talked about in a variety of other podcasts or other content that we produce, how important it is to make sure you know when you are outsourcing a task to a vendor that you understand and know what that vendor is responsible for and what they're providing to you and making sure that you're oversighting the data that you're getting or receiving from that, that vendor. One resource we found when we were doing some research for this podcast was there was a FINRA notice 2129 in regards to FINRA just reminds firms of their supervisory obligations related to outsourcing the third-party vendors. Now that this podcast isn't necessarily about vendor oversight, again, we've found AWCs and enforcements like that we've talked about in the past, or if you just kind of go through them, where the firms do get fined for not testing or supervising the vendor. That's right. In fact, in that, that regulatory notice, Finner points out a number of different disciplinary actions that they brought against firms for failures to do this in an adequate way. So one of Finner's findings was that there were firms who were failing to test whether or not the vendors that they had hired for prevailing market price obligations related to fix and compare pricing were calculating their markups correctly from the right level of the waterfall. So in this case, what they had highlighted is that firms should have been using the contemporaneous cost for their prevailing market price, but instead the vendors were actually going to lower steps in the waterfall in their estimation too quickly. And this wasn't being oversighted correctly. Another case that we've, I think we've talked about this in the past, but just kind of thinking about it is... There was an AWC a while back ago about a firm not sending out annual disclosures. And the reason for it is they were actually relying on their vendor to send that out and not testing that the annual disclosures were actually going out. So if you think about when we go through each one of these examples, there could be so many different touch points. In this case, it might be a good idea to go through and document all the vendors you're using, probably already do that for vendor management as is, and think about what and what regulatory or FINRA rule you're using them for, and are they actually completing it? Right. Well, and I think, you know, when we talk about testing, it, it kind of comes back to what are you actually looking at to make sure that the vendor that you've contracted with is doing all of these things, right? So a really easy way that you might be able to test this is to look at the exception reports that are generated if that applies to the vendor and, and that, that you're referring to, um, and to test those exception reports to make sure that they're looking at the right things and that if there are trades that are not being surveilled, for example, by that vendor, to look at those as well to make sure that they 
shouldn't be captured or perhaps that if they are do need to be captured that you're then including them after you've identified that that is a discrepancy. Right. Well, and also not only with exception reports, but if we're still thinking about the capital markets, there was a lot of we, we've ran into different enforcements in the past where a 605 or a 606 report being generated by a vendor uh, was missing information. So, again, we're just if you're relying on a third party, you still have that due diligence responsibility to test and make sure that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. So I think you kind of alluded to this, but really, you know, testing your system may not be wholly different from vendor oversight because you may be outsourcing some of these functions to a system, right? So knowing that it's important to test your systems and to test to make sure that the vendors you've contracted with are doing what they say they're going to do. But further than that, I think some of the things that firms need to think about when they're thinking, is my system working correctly? Is it working appropriately the way I expect it to? Do you have all the right use cases that you've identified to make sure that all the right trades are being piped through those systems? And that's going to be something that you're going to have to look a little bit more internally on than focusing outwards on the vendor itself. A couple of things to think about in testing this. So real world example, a million years ago, new accounts had changed how they coded certain things on an account and didn't realize that my order management system was actually mapped using that that data. So all my logistics was off of that mapping. And without them telling me, I had no clue there were changes. So that caused a system break without me then going in and later on just testing, you know, in my normal testing schedule to find it. I may not have known because it wasn't a big example. It wasn't, it wasn't something that happened often enough that it would have been a huge outlier for us to notice immediately. So, so many little things can actually cause a break. And a lot of times there's a disconnect, like new accounts doesn't know, trading's using information. And when they make updates, you may be have you may have mapping for your systems coded off of updates that other departments are changing around. Sure. I mean, when you think about what it's going to take to really kind of develop those test scripts to do system updates or to make different changes to the system or even to implement a new system, who all is involved in that process. And it's a lot of times it's led by IT. And we talk about this a lot, making sure that you have the right people seated at the table to ensure all perspectives are considered. So your example is a really good one where it's unlikely in that situation, since it was a new accounts process, they were probably involved. They probably had all the people that they needed involved in their business area. But downstream, it impacts trading operations in other ways. And are those people being considered? Are all the downstream impacts being considered? So that way you can come up with the right use cases to make sure you're testing appropriately. I think we've also talked about other inaccuracies that have actually caused enforcement fines. And, you know, they all fall into categories such as with your trade confirmations, having inaccuracies due to coding issues, or we've talked about trace reporting inaccuracies, again, due to system mapping, right? Like they didn't, maybe, let's just think, at one point, like maybe they didn't have the modifier rope flowing correctly or an enumeration indicator or any of those indicators out there could easily break in the system and not be sending over to your books and records and your and your final trade files. Right. There's a disciplinary case that I recall from earlier this year where it was a firm was fined because there was a coding error that was actually underreporting a firm's 605 metrics to their vendor. So because the way they set that up, it wasn't taking into consideration all of the right information. And as a result, it was causing downstream impacts and actually violating, in this case, Rule 605, because they didn't have all the right information being considered. 
Right. Well, I think that leads us right into our third topic of testing data. Um, and, and that falls into the data integrity, right? Data integrity you send to the vendor is also one. So not only is it is the vendor doing the right thing, but are you providing them with the accurate data they need to be able to do what they need to do? So when you're thinking about what kind of information is going to be provided to a vendor, it, there, there's a couple different places this could start. It could start with your trade files. It could start with your security master. And what kind of information are you actually reviewing when you're sending that information over to make sure things are, are going over correctly? It's always important to trust but verify that the information that you're being provided is accurate. And if there are things that are coming over, for instance, in a trade file that says the order is solicited or maybe it's unsolicited, what are you doing to kind of double check and make sure that that is mapped correctly through the system? Right. And that you're sending it over. Uh, it... 2022's exam priorities. This was under disclosure of order routing, but that was one of the findings that they called out was the data integrity sent to the vendor. Well, we've talked about this one quite a bit too, just thinking of client data oversight. So looking at your client facing documents and are you making sure that the information that you're providing to your clients, say on trade confirmations, say on account statements, when you think about what your processes are to actually verify that the information on those documents is accurate, what sort of tests are you performing to make sure that that's the case? That should include probably some element of random sampling, some element of targeted sampling to make sure that the data that gets to the end client is accurate. You know, because all of these that talking about the vendors and the systems and data integrity to the vendor, but you also have to remember that a lot of firms are creating their own reception reports for whatever reason, or, you know, maybe even designing some of their own systems. And with exception reports, in my career, there's been so many times that, it, let's say, compliance was trying to create an exception report and worked with IT to create it, and they weren't getting any results. And when they sent it to me, it was easy for me because I understood what our data, how our data worked and what it, how it needed to be mapped, that I would identify IT wasn't using the right data field to be able to identify what they needed in the exception report. Right. And when you think about actually performing a test of that data... You know, the, the, the quality of the test you perform is only going to be as good as the inputs. So if you have data that's not coming through that's accurate, obviously that's not going to give you a great output. We have always preach for trade confirmations, for example, if you're going to be doing some sort of a test of your trade confirmations, double check those, those yield calculations. Make sure those are accurate. And I think, again, Jesse mentioned it earlier. I'm going to say it again. It's always our mantra. Testing samples should be targeted and random. You'll identify these cases in a targeted exam. If I'm trying to, say, pull all the trades that meet the scenario and nothing's being found, it may be because whoever's writing that report is not using the accurate data samples and data fields. So we've talked a little bit about testing vendors, testing systems, testing data. All of those things are great. But then how does this all kind of come together to create a robust testing plan? So our suggestion really is to map this out. You really should focus on creating a robust testing plan that describes what tests you perform and with what level of regularity. Right. The goal of your testing plan should be thorough and deep understanding of your business area. And as we've mentioned throughout the course of this podcast, we always recommend some element of random and targeted sampling when you're performing these tests. We broke out 
the testing into three different categories through this conversation, where we talk about testing vendors, vendors, testing systems, and testing data, we think it's important that you identify these three items as separate pillars in your testing plan, even if they do kind of correlate with each other, just to make sure that you don't have any gaps and are not missing anything. When you're focusing on vendors and systems and data as those three pillars, Again, it allows you to get a little bit deeper into the actual processes and the work that's being conducted by the areas that you support. It'll allow you to be more knowledgeable on the practices that are being undertaken by your business area. Right. So many things could easily break and it's hard to identify if something's broke or not. But think about if there is a break. One, we know that these are where all of the fines from the enforcements come from. But what are also some trickle down impacts would be for instance, think of your cat data. If you have inaccuracies in your cat data, that's actually being used right now by the SEC to collect data in regards to these market structure proposals that they're using. So by creating a testing plan, this should help you stay more organized and on top of the risks that you've identified in those business areas. Once you've done that, then you can map out the frequency with which you need to perform those reviews. And let's be honest, that can be the hardest part because it is, you still have all your day-to-day -day work. We know sitting in your chair how hard it is to be able to do all this intricate testing. That being said, that's why we created Trade Alliance is to help firms carry this burden of regulatory issues. We're able to come in and help you with those testing burdens if your firm has that need. Or maybe you just need some help getting started. And if that's the case, we can also help you create some resource guides that will help you devise and design this testing plan in a way that works for you. So just to sum it up, we talk a lot about testing at Trade Alliance. We really just wanted to do a deep dive and discuss what testing means to us and how we would handle each type of the testing scenarios that we can conduct. We always encourage firms to create and maintain a robust testing plan that goes beyond your 3120 or 20647 annual testing requirements. Your firm testing plan should go deep enough to not only test whether or not your WSPs are reasonably designed, but also to ensure that you have a deep and thorough understanding of the practices of the business areas you support. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Vines & Wines is a part of Trade Alliance, a consulting firm for broker dealers and investment advisors with trading, operations, and compliance. Though these episodes are intended to be casual and a fun take on discussing regulation, our consultants are serious when it comes to helping you out.